Magnolia Christi Americana, or the Ecclesiastical History of New England, from its first planting in the year 1620 unto the year of our Lord, 1698, by Cotton Mather. Antiquities, the first book of the New English History, continued. Chapter 3. Conamur tenues grandia. We attempt great things with slender resources. Or a brief account of the difficulties, the deliverances, and other occurrences through which the plantation of New Plymouth arrived under the consistency of a colony. Setting aside the just and great grief of our new planters for the immature death of their excellent governor, succeeded by the worthy Mr. Bradford, early in the spring after their first arrival, they spent their summer somewhat comfortably, trading with the Indians to the northward of their plantation, in which trade they were not a little assisted by Squanto, who within a year or two died among the English. But before his death desired them to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. And besides the assistance of Squanto, they had also the help of another Indian called Hobbamock, who continued faithful unto the English interests as long as he lived, though he sometimes went in danger of his life among his countrymen for that fidelity. So they jogged on till the day, twelve month after their first arrival, when there now arrived unto them a good number more of their old friends from Holland for the strengthening of their new plantation. But inasmuch as they brought not sufficient stock of provisions with them, they rather weakened it than strengthened it. If Peter Martyr could magnify the Spaniards, of whom he reports, they led a miserable life for three days together with parched grain of maize only, and that not unto satiety. What shall I say of our Englishman, who would have thought a little parched Indian corn a mighty feast? But they wanted it, not only three days together. No, for two or three months together they had no kind of corn among them. Such was the scarcity, accompanied with the disproportion of the inhabitants to the provisions." However, Peter Martyr's conclusion may be ours. With their miseries, this people opened a way to those new lands, and afterwards other men came to inhabit them with ease, in respect of the calamities which those men have suffered. They were indeed very often upon the very point of starving. But in their extremity, the God of heaven always furnished them with some sudden reliefs, either by causing some vessels of strangers occasionally to look in upon them, or by putting them into a way to catch fish in some convenient quantities, or by some other surprising accidents, for which they rendered unto heaven the solemn thanks of their souls. They kept in such good working case that besides their progress in building and planting and fishing, they formed a sort of a fort wherein they kept a nightly watch for their security against any treachery of the Indians, being thereunto awakened by an horrible massacre, which the Indians lately made upon several hundreds of the English in Virginia. 
In one of the first summers after their sitting down at Plymouth, a terrible drought threatened the ruin of all their summer's husbandry. From about the middle of May to the middle of July, an extreme hot sun beat upon their fields without any rain, so that all their corn began to wither and languish, and some of it was irrecoverably parched up. In this distress, they set apart a day for fasting and prayer to deprecate the calamity that might bring them to fasting through famine. In the morning, of which day, there was no sign of any rain, but before the evening, the sky was overcast with clouds, which went not away, without such easy, gentle, and yet plentiful showers, as revived a great part of their decayed corn for a comfortable harvest. The Indians themselves took notice of this answer given from heaven to the supplications of this devout people, and one of them said, Now I see that the Englishman's God is a good God, for he hath heard you and sent you rain, and that without such tempest and thunder as we used to have with our rain, which after our powwowing for it breaks down the corn, whereas your corn stands whole and good still. Surely your God is a good God. The harvest which God thus gave to this pious people caused them to set apart another day for solemn thanksgiving to the glorious hearer of prayers. There was another most wonderful preservation vouchsafed by God unto this little knot of Christians. One Mr. Weston, a merchant of good note, interested at first in the Plymouth design, afterwards deserted it, and in the year 1622 sent over two ships, with about sixty men, to begin a plantation in the Massachusetts Bay. These beginners, being well refreshed at Plymouth, traveled more northward unto a place known since by the name of Weymouth, where these Westonians, who were Church of England men, did not approve themselves like the Plymouthians, a pious, honest, industrious people, but followed such bad courses as had like to have brought a ruin upon their neighbors as well as themselves. Having by their idleness brought themselves to penury, they stole corn from the Indians, and many other ways provoked them. Although the governor of Plymouth writ them his very sharp disapprobation of their proceedings. To satisfy the exasperated savages, diverse of the thieves were stalked and whipped, and one of them at last put to death by this miserable company, which did no other service than to afford an occasion for a fable to the roguish Hudibras, for all accommodation was now too late. The Indians far and near entered into a conspiracy to cut off these abusive English, and lest the inhabitants of Plymouth should revenge that excision of their countrymen, they resolved upon the murder of them also. In pursuance of this plot, Captain Standish, the commander of the militia of Plymouth, lodging on a night with two or three men in an Indian house, the Indians proposed that they might begin the execution of their malice by the assassination of the captain, as soon as he should be fallen asleep. However, the watchful providence of God so ordered it that the captain could not sleep 
all that night, and so they durst not meddle with him. Thus was the beginning of the plot put by, but the whole plot came another way to be discovered and prevented. Massasoit, the southern sachem, falling sick, the governor of Plymouth desired a couple of gentlemen, whereof one was that good man, Mr. Winslow, to visit this poor sachem, whom, after their long journey, they found lying at the point of death with a crew of hellish poows, using their ineffectual spells and howls about him to recover him. Upon the taking of some English physic, he presently revived, and thus regaining his lost health, the fees he paid his English doctor were a confession of the plot among several nations of the Indians to destroy the English. He said that they had in vain solicited him to enter into that bloody combination, but his advice was that the governor of Plymouth should immediately take off the principal actors in this business, whereupon the rest, being terrified, would soon desist. There was a concurrence of many things to confirm the truth of this information. Wherefore, Captain Standish took eight resolute men with him to the Westonian plantation, where, pretending to trade with the Indians, divers of the conspirators began to treat him in a manner very insolent. The captain and his little army of eight men, reader, allow them for their courage to be called so, with a prodigious resolution presently killed some of the chief among these Indians, while the rest, after a short combat, ran before him as fast as their legs could carry them. Nevertheless, in the midst of the skirmishes, an Indian youth ran to the English, desiring to be with them, and declaring that the Indians waited but for their finishing two canoes to have surprised the ship in the harbor and have massacred all the people, which had been finished if the captain had not arrived among them just in the nick of time when he did. And an Indian spy detained at Plymouth when he saw the captain return from this expedition, with the head of a famous Indian in his hand, then with a fallen and frightened countenance acknowledged the whole mischief intended by the Indians against the English. Releasing this fellow, they sent him to the sachem of the Massachusetts, with advice of what he must look for in case he committed any hostility upon the subjects of the King of England. Whereof there was this effect, that not only that sachem, hereby terrified, most humbly begged for peace and pleaded his ignorance of his men's intentions, but the rest of the Indians, under the same terror, withdrew themselves to live in the unhealthful swamps which proved mortal to many of them. One of the Westonians was endeavoring to carry unto Plymouth a report of the straits and fears which were come upon them, and this man, losing his way, saved his life. Taking a wrong track, he escaped the hands of the two Indians who went on hunting after him. However, ere he reached Plymouth, care had been already taken for these wretched Westonians by the earlier and fuller communications of Massasoit. So was the peace of Plymouth preserved, and so the Westonian plantation broke up, went off, and came to nothing. 
although twas much wished by the holy Robinson that some of the poor heathen had been converted before any of them had been slaughtered. A certain gentleman, if nothing in the following story contradict that name, was employed in obtaining from the Grand Council of Plymouth and England a patent in the name of these planters for a convenient quantity of the country, where the providence of God had now disposed them. This man, speaking one word for them, spake two for himself, and surreptitiously procured the patent in his own name, reserving for himself and his heirs a huge tract of the land, and intending the Plymouthians to hold the rest as tenants under him. Hereupon he took on board many passengers with their goods, but having sailed no further than the downs, the ship sprang a leak, and besides this disaster, which alone was enough to have stopped the voyage, one strand of their cable was accidentally cut by which means it broke in a stress of wind. And they were in extreme danger of being wrecked upon the sands. Having with much cost recruited their loss, and increased the number of their passengers, they put out again to sea. But after they had got halfway, one of the saddest and longest storms that had been known since the days of the Apostle Paul drove them home to England again, with a vessel well-nigh torn to pieces, though the lives of the people, which were above an hundred, mercifully preserved. This man, by all his tumbling backward and forward, was by this time grown so sick of his patent that he vomited it up. He assigned it over to the company, but they afterwards obtained another, under the umbrage whereof they could now more effectually carry on the affairs of their new colony. The passengers went over afterwards in another vessel, and quickly after that another vessel of passengers also arrived in the country, namely in the year 1623. Among these passengers were divers worthy and useful men, who were come to seek the welfare of this little Israel, though at their coming they were as diversely affected as the rebuilders of the temple at Jerusalem. Some were grieved when they saw how bad the circumstances of their friends were, and others were glad that they were no worse. The immature death of Mr. Robinson in Holland, with many ensuing disasters, hindered a great part of the English congregation at Leiden from coming over to the remnant here separated from their brethren. Hence it was that although this remnant of that church were blessed with an elder so apt to teach that he attended all the other works of a minister, yet they had not a pastor to dispense the sacraments among them, till the year 1629, when one Mr. Ralph Smith undertook the pastoral charge of this holy flock. But long before that, namely in the year 1624, the adventurers in England, with whom this company held a correspondence, did send over unto them a minister, who did them no manner of good. But by his treacherous and mischievous tricks, at last utterly destroyed that correspondence. The first neat cattle, namely three heifers and a bull, that ever were brought into this land, 
now coming with him, did the land certainly better service than was ever done by him, who sufficiently forgot that scriptural emblem of a minister, the ox treading out the corn. This minister at his first arrival did caress them with such extreme showers of affection and humility that they were very much taken with him. Nevertheless, within a little while, he used most malignant endeavors to make factions among them and confound all their civil and sacred order. At last there fell into the hands of the governor his letters home to England, filled with wicked and lying accusations against the people. Of which things, being shamefully convicted, the authority sentenced him to be expelled from the plantation. Only they allowed him to stay six months, with secret reservations and expectations to release him from that sentence, if he approved himself sound in the repentance which he now expressed. Repentance, I say, for he did now publicly in the church confess with tears that the censure of the church was less than he deserved. He acknowledged, quote, that he had slanderously abused the good people, and that God might justly lay innocent blood to his charge, for he knew not what hurt might have come through his writings. For the interception whereof he now blessed God, and that it had been his manner to pick up all the evil that was ever spoken against the people, but he shut his ears and eyes against all the good. And that if God should make him a vagabond in the earth, he were just in doing so. And that those three things, pride, vainglory, and self-love, had been the causes of his miscarriages." These things he uttered so pathetically that they again permitted him to preach among them, and some were so persuaded of his repentance that they professed they would fall down on their knees that the censure passed on him should be remitted. But, oh, the deceitful heart of man! After two months' time, he so notoriously renewed the miscarriages which he had thus bewailed that his own wife— through her affliction of mind at his hypocrisy, could not forbear declaring her fears that God would bring some heavy judgment upon their family. Not only for these, but some former wickednesses by him committed, especially as to fearful breaches of the seventh commandment, which he had with an oath denied, though they were afterwards evinced. Wherefore, upon the whole, being banished from hence, because his residence here was utterly inconsistent with the life of this infant plantation, he went to Virginia, where he shortly after ended his own life. Quickly after these difficulties, the company of adventurers for the support of this plantation became rather adversaries to it, or at least a be-you-warmed-and-filled a few good words were all the help they afforded it. They broke to pieces, but the God of heaven still supported it. After these many difficulties were thus a little surmounted, the inhabitants of this colony prosecuted their affairs at so vigorous and successful a rate that they not only fell into a comfortable way, both of planting and of trading, but also in a few years there was a notable number of towns to be seen settled among them, and very considerable churches, walking, 
so far as they had attained in the faith and order of the gospel. Their churches flourished so considerably that in the year 1642 there were above a dozen ministers, and some of those ministers were stars of the first magnitude, shining in their several orbs among them. And as they proceeded in the evangelical service and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, so they prospered in their secular concernments. When they first began to divide their lands, they wisely contrived the division so that they might keep close together for their mutual defense. And then their condition was very like that of the Romans in the time of Romulus, when every man contented himself with two acres of land, and, as Pliny tells us, quote, it was thought a great reward for one to receive a pint of corn from the people of Rome, which corn they also pounded in mortars, end quote. But since then their condition is marvelously altered and amended. Great farms are now seen among the effects of this good people's planting. And in their fishing from the catching of cod and other fish of less dimensions, they are since passed on to the catching of whales, whose oil has become a staple commodity of the country. Whales, I say, which, living in moving islands, do now find a way to this coast, where, notwithstanding the desperate hazards run by the whale-catchers in their thin whale-boats, often torn to pieces by the strokes of those enraged monsters, yet it has been rarely known that any of them have miscarried. And within a few days of my writing this paragraph, a cow and a calf were caught at Yarmouth in this colony, the cow was fifty-five foot long, the bone was nine or ten foot wide, a cart upon wheels might have gone in at the mouth of it, the calf was twenty foot long, for unto such vast calves the sea monsters draw forth their breasts. But so does the good God here give his people to suck the abundance of the seas." If my reader would have the religion of these planters more exactly described unto him, after I have told him that many hundreds of holy souls, having been ripened for heaven under the ordinances of God in this colony, and having left an example of wonderful prayerfulness, watchfulness, thankfulness, usefulness, exact conscientiousness, piety, charity, weanedness from the things of this world, an affection to the things that are above, are now at rest with the blessed Jesus, whose names, though not recorded in this book, are yet entered in the book of life. And I hope there are still many hundreds of their children, even of the third and fourth generation, resolving to follow them as they followed Christ. I must refer him to an account given thereof by the right worshipful Edward Winslow, Esquire, who was for some time the governor of that colony. He gives us to understand that they are entirely of the same faith with the Reformed churches in Europe. Only in their church government they are endeavorers after a reformation more thorough than what is in many of them. Yet without any uncharitable separation from them, 
He gives instances of their admitting to communion among the communicants of the French, the Dutch, the Scotch churches, merely by virtue of their being so, and says, quote, We ever placed a large difference between those that grounded their practice on the word of God, though differing from us in the exposition and understanding of it, and those that hated such reformers and reformation, and went on an anti-Christian opposition to it and persecution of it, quote. After which he adds, quote, "'Tis true we profess and desire to practice a separation from the world and the works of the world, and as the churches of Christ are all saints by calling, so we desire to see the grace of God shining forth, at least seemingly, leaving secret things to God, in all we admit into church fellowship with us, and to keep off such as openly wallow in the mire of their sins, that neither the holy things of God nor the communion of saints may be leavened or polluted thereby. And if any joining to us formerly, either when we lived at Leiden and Holland, or since we came to New England, have with the manifestation of their faith and profession of holiness, held forth therewith separation from the Church of England. I have divers times, both in the one place and in the other, heard either Mr. Robinson, our pastor, or Mr. Brewster, our elder, stop them forthwith, showing them that we required no such thing at their hands, but only to hold forth faith in Christ Jesus, holiness in the fear of God, and submission to every ordinance and appointment of God." End quote. Thus he. It is true there have been some varieties among this people, but still I suppose the body of them do with integrity espouse and maintain the principles upon which they were first established. However, I must, without fear of offending, express my fear that the leaven of that rigid thing they call Brownism has prevailed sometimes a little of the furthest in the administrations of this pious people. Yea, there was an hour of temptation wherein the fondness of the people for the prophesyings of the brethren, as they called those exercises. That is to say, the preachments of those whom they called gifted brethren produced those discouragements unto their ministers that almost all the ministers left the colony. Apprehending themselves driven away by the insupportable neglect and contempt with which the people on this occasion treated them. And this dark hour of eclipse, upon the light of the gospel, in the churches of the colony, continued until their humiliation and reformation before the great shepherd of the sheep, who hath since then blessed them with a succession of as worthy ministers as most in the land. Moreover, there has been among them one church that have questioned and omitted the use of infant baptism. Nevertheless, there being many good men among those that have been of this persuasion, I do not know that they have been persecuted with any harder means than those of kind conferences to reclaim them. There have been also some unhappy sectaries, that is, Quakers and Seekers, and other such energumens, that is, victims of demoniacal possession. Pardon me, reader, that I have thought them so, 
which have given ugly disturbances to these good-spirited men and their temple work, but they have not prevailed unto the subversion of the first interest. Some little controversies likewise have now and then arisen among them in the administration of their discipline. But synods then regularly called have usually and presently put into joint all that was apprehended out. Their chief hazard and symptom of degeneracy is in the verification of that old observation, religio peperit divitias et filia decoravit matrem. Religion brought forth prosperity, and the daughter destroyed the mother. The one would expect that as they grew in their estates, they would grow in the payment of their quit-rents unto the God who gives them power to get wealth by more liberally supporting his ministers and ordinances among them. The most likely way to save them from the most miserable apostasy. The neglect whereof in some former years began for a while to be punished with a sore famine of the word. Nevertheless, there is danger, lest the enchantments of this world make them to forget their errand into the wilderness. And some woeful villages in the skirts of the colony, beginning to live without the means of grace among them, are still more ominous intimations of the danger. May the God of New England preserve them from so great a death. Going now to take my leave of this little colony, that I may converse for a while with her younger sisters, which yet have outstripped her in growth exceedingly, and so will now draw all the streams of her affairs into their channels, I shall repeat the counsel which their faithful Robinson gave the first planters of the colony, at their parting from him in Holland. Said he, to this purpose, quote, Brethren, we are now quickly to part from one another, and whether I may ever live to see your faces on earth any more, the God of heaven only knows. But whether the Lord have appointed that or no, I charge you before God and before his blessed angels, that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If God reveal anything to you by any other instrument of His, be as ready to receive it, as ever you were to receive any truth by my ministry. For I am verily persuaded, I am very confident the Lord hath more truth yet to break forth out of His holy word." For my part, I cannot sufficiently bewail the condition of the Reformed churches who are come to a period in religion, and will go at present no further than the instruments of their first Reformation. The Lutherans cannot be drawn to go beyond what Luther saw. Whatever part of his will our good God has imparted and revealed unto Calvin, they will rather die than embrace it. And the Calvinists, you see, stick fast where they were left by that great man of God, who yet saw not all things. This is a misery much to be lamented, for though they were burning and shining lights in their times, yet they penetrated not into the whole counsel of God, but were they now living, they would be as willing to embrace further light as that which they first received. I beseech you to remember it, 
It is an article of your church covenant that you will be ready to receive whatever truth shall be made known unto you from the written word of God. Remember that and every other article of your most sacred covenant. But I must herewithal exhort you to take heed what you receive as truth. Examine it, consider it, compare it with the other scriptures of truth before you do receive it. For it is not possible the Christian world should come so lately out of such thick anti-Christian darkness, and that perfection of knowledge should break forth at once. I must also advise you to abandon, avoid, and shake off the name of Brownist. It is a mere nickname, and a brand for the making of religion and the professors of religion odious unto the Christian world. Unto this end... I should be extremely glad if some godly minister would go with you or come to you before you can have any company. For there will be no difference between the unconformable ministers of England and you when you come to the practice of evangelical ordinances out of the kingdom. And I would wish you by all means to close with the godly people of England. Study union with them in all things, wherein you can have it without sin, rather than in the least measure to effect a division or separation from them. Neither would I have you loathe to take another pastor besides myself, inasmuch as a flock that hath two shepherds is not thereby endangered, but secured. So, adding some other things of great consequence, he concluded most affectionately, commending his departing flock unto the grace of God, which now I also do the offspring of that holy flock. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.